0: probably aware that uh, myself and my colleague from Nottingham, Dr. Dan Harvey, have uh, written a um, medical decision-making, ethical decision-making framework called Moral Balance. And that's really built off the work by uh, Beauchamp and Childress, who gave us our four principles of autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. What's interesting for us is the fact that we, as medical students, as I said, all we need to do is spell the words. But if you read their actual book, The Principles of Bioethics, what you'll see in that is actually it's all about how you apply those four principles. And that's what our paper in the BJA Education last year really sort of looked at. And we call that framework moral balance. I'm sure we'll talk about what that means as we go on.
1: One of the sort of areas of contention is when people are asked to make decisions to admit patients to intensive care. It could easily be argued, couldn't it, that everyone would benefit from critical care. Is that practical?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, Yeah, who doesn't benefit from one-to-one nursing? It isn't always practical, but at our heart, there's a number of principles that I think are really relevant. And some of those principles have been a change in my own career. I began as a consultant in the UK in 2004. Probably people can pick from my accent. I am Australian, so I've trained in Australia and the UK. And I used to walk down to the emergency department to see a patient and with the mindset of how do I say no? And I've moved in my career and I generally go now with the mindset of saying yes and I often see that what we're seeing from our specialties that we're going to review a patient, there's often a cry for help and some of that help is for us to actually make a decision because more and more they need that sort of support of an intensive care to aid them in actually saying no themselves but also Sometimes it is the right thing to try to remove that patient from that ward, from that emergency department because of those difficulties.
1: Does that reflect social change, social progression, what's expected from the general public? Or do you think it reflects an increasing degree of medical uncertainty with regards to what benefit is?
0: Yeah, absolutely, James. What I've seen over, and I'm sure you have yourself, is the expectation of society has altered. One of my mentors, many years ago, he's retired now. I remember the phone call and they say, well, he's over 80 and he would almost just hang up on the person referring and that was intensive care in the UK. It was quite a shock for me actually coming from Australia because uh, in Australia, intensive care, they would generally be admitted and there would be no question. Yet, because of the shortages of intensive care beds, what was happening was uh, we were being very protective of those beds and we had to survive. Probably more shocking to me coming from Australia is how quickly I adapted to the UK decision-making mindset and convinced myself that I was very good at being able to pick the winner from the person who wouldn't actually survive their intensive care stay. What we've learned over the recent years, including devastating brain injury protocols, is we're not always as good as we think at picking the one who will really benefit physiologically from intensive care and survive. Of course, also what we're learning is there's more at play than just the living or the dying. And uh, moral balance framework, the M stands for uh, make sure of the facts, and often that can be a cause of disagreement. But really what we're often looking at is the outcomes of relevance to the agents involved. That's the O-R-A in the moral. And the L stands for level out the arguments uh, using a balancing box, which is using Beauchamp and Childress's four principles. But those outcomes of relevance, see, some of them aren't just about living or dying. And sometimes it's about the type of death someone will have and the end of life care. And, you know, as a principle in my own career is is I try to deliver a standard of care for my patients that I would want for myself or my family and dying in the emergency department on a Friday night with the drunks and with the noise and with the lack of privacy and without the one-to-one nursing, it's not a good place. And you raise the point of, what, well, you know, what can we do if we don't have the resources? But, you know, more and more, that's why I go down, I walk down to the ED with a mindset of how am I going to say yes, rather than how I'm going to say no. And sometimes I still have to say no, but my mindset and my default is how can I help? And I think that's where intensive care is moving. And you can see this in the way intensive care doctors are rising within the hospital hierarchy into positions of governance and positions of medical directors. Because we go everywhere in the hospital and actually we are have that mindset of we can help. And I really like that. and I really admire that about our specialty. We are the hospital's hospital. When you're sick in the community, you go to hospital. But when you're sick in hospital, you come to intensive care. And that's what we offer. And we should be looking into ways that we do offer that.
1: And I think most people who have been in intensive care have also articulated similar findings to me that over the last 10 years, or so years the attitude has changed to work out what you can do to say no is work out what you can do to say yes clearly we talked about the sort of cost of resources are there other costs that
0: we need to be wary of
1: when we continue to say yes to people or try and facilitate care for everyone
0: what i call it is i call it mission creep one of the dangers is that you'll take a patient up to the intensive care and you'll say oh this will be for 24 hours or we're not going to do this uh, procedure and you know, we won't ventilate them, but we'll bring them. And there can be uh, mission creep, mainly because we hand over to another colleagues. And also because once we get to know that family, that patient, and they might rally a little bit. And then we think, oh, maybe I was wrong. Maybe there is more here than I can work with. And then we said we wouldn't filter, but tomorrow we're filtering. And that mission creep has to be protected. At the same time, I think what's changed a lot in intensive care is the number of high dependency beds. And that gives us a lot more freedom than we used to have. In fact, in my hospital in Nottingham, in the critical care, we often run out of level two beds more than we run out of ventilators for level three. And that's where some of the challenges is. But it also is an opportunity. Um, I've moved to using what I call the yes, but message uh, when I get a referral. So this is a patient where you really aren't sure, like they might have cancer they're not very good, but there is that cry from help from the ward. And there's also, you know, that pressure. And this is where the outcomes of relevance are. There's pressure from the parent team to, to take. And saying no really just sets you up at a loggerhead. The ward's not coping. The uh, parent team is emotionally not coping. And the family and the patient aren't ready for, for end-of-life care. And we come along, and if you go with the mindset of saying yes, well, maybe just say yes. But that's where the but comes in. You might say, yes, we'll take them from the ward come across to critical care we'll put a central line in we'll try to get the blood pressure up but you know if that doesn't work then maybe you know this is a time that actually there's nothing more we can do you know we're not going to ventilate them because it wouldn't work and you know if the heart stops what could we do then in this context and that's where you're sort of negotiating with everyone about the dnar about those escalation decisions you have to be careful about the mission creep you know that's that's the risk but you can sort of see how the yes but builds relationships I think you'd agree that as you become more of a sort of a senior consultant and you realise that you're growing old with these colleagues, parent specialty consultants and the nursing staff from the wards, you're all growing old together, that the relationships count. Even in a massive hospital, those relationships are important. And it's not just about this one patient right now. It's also about that relationship for the future of how you work with your colleagues. Again, that's another outcome of relevance to us as clinicians is maintaining relationships because you'll need them and they'll need you for years to come, not just tonight. And sometimes you will eventually take a patient on maybe the yes, but understanding. And part of who you're treating and who you're supporting is the patient and the family, of course, but also that relationship because It's detrimental to future patients if you destroy it in the night over a big fight over something. Especially if you, you know, you you could take the patient and you're just being pig-headed not to. Obviously,
1: we talked about the benefits
0: in terms of the impact
1: on staff on the unit if you continue to admit people who we think have a low probability of a successful outcome, and that can be based on lots of subjective and objective data. How do we sort of couch what we're doing to? nursing staff, junior medical staff, and other consultants to make it more, I guess, more understanding.
0: This is the challenge, and this is the future 20 years of intensive care, is what's our purpose? It was very simple in the old days. Our purpose was to uh, to save lives. We're realising that the raw metric of mortality isn't necessarily the best metric to be using. You know saving some people's lives and they're off to the nursing home and they and this was a outcome of relevance. this was something they would never wish for themselves, but well done us we've saved their life and now they're getting the outcome that they never wanted. You know the purpose potentially of intensive care is to try to deliver outcomes that matter to our patients and their families. This can be hard this is not an easy uh, decision it's not an easy to know what people want or to assess that. But I think a good death is something that's actually defined um, by the Institute of Medicine back in uh, 1997, and I still find it quite helpful. There are three bits to a good death. A good death should be one that is free from avoidable death. So clearly, what that means is we don't want people who would have lived who we allow to die. That's probably intensive care from the sort of 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, all those sort of the first 40 years. Now it's you know in general accordance with a patient's and family's wishes. And I think that's partly, you know, what we're seeing is I see myself as an acute palliative care physician now as part of the role of intensive care. You know, palliative care physicians, they work on days and weeks and months of dying. We work on hours and days of dying. And, you know, our specialty of palliative care, you can learn from the palliative care physicians, but I think we're almost our own specialty in this. You know, we deliver, consultant-delivered end-of-life care You know, when I'm there at one in the morning, two in the morning, helping oversee someone's end of life, I do wonder how many palliative care physicians are there at two o'clock in the morning delivering end of life care. And, you know, we're a different specialty for that. I think we should be proud and we should own up to the fact that that's what we do. And the other thing is, we know, free from avoidable suffering for patients, families and caregivers. And what ED death couldn't sometimes be is lots of suffering for patients, families and caregivers because they haven't got the resources, they haven't got that time. And potentially we can help make that free, especially with a ventilated patient, which we've actually already, from our nature of the specialty, we've already sort of invested on. You know, that doesn't mean deaths in ED, we should take all of them. One of my colleagues who's an ED consultant, she spoke about this bolt of evil lightning that strikes people down for a brain injury. And she was talking about the devastating brain injury patients. So these are people who are minding their own business. Everyone thought they're okay. And then bam, and they're dying. And everyone, family, need time to come to terms with that. They were talking to them last night. And she says, those patients, the families all benefit from time and intensive care to say goodbye, to grasp this sort of bolt of evil lightning. Patients who are chronic COPD coming in all the time, patients who are deteriorating I and mean, back and forth. She says, we deal with their deaths very well in the ED. You don't need intensive care or critical care for that because there's almost a weight of expectation in the family that eventually something will happen. And I think that can help us. The devastating brain injury protocol was not carte blanche to admit every single dying patient in the entire hospital to be running around tubing every patient who you know might have a bit of airway sort of noises at the time of death. This is what intensive care needs to be doing. Patients who have that bolt of evil lightning and giving time to the family can be a real outcome of relevance that benefits patients, benefits families, benefits other staff, and also benefits ourselves. And I think our nurses get that. They know that some of the best boxes of chocolates, the best cards, and the best financial gifts to intensive care don't come from the patients we save. They often come from the patients we didn't save, but who we nevertheless gave exemplary world-class care and treatment for
1: just going back to making decisions and at the time, how do you go about saying no then? You know, our mindset has changed to try and be one of how can I help? But there will clearly be instances where we think, well, a whole host of reasons you say no. Would it be yeah. in looking at the physiology in the first instance? Would it be looking at the moral
0: balance framework? I'll quote one of my uh, more junior consultant colleagues who's taught me something. She actually said she looks for three reasons when she goes to a place to say no. And if she can't find three reasons, then she says yes. And I think that's a nice little thing. So you might say the physiology of the person can be one. And you know, there might be cancer as another one. And it might be then something about the outcomes that they were deteriorating. And then you've got your three. The other way of saying no also is to protect ourselves with getting a second opinion. I can see that in the way we've changed our shifts in Nottingham. You know, we provide two f- uh, physical presence of consultants up to midnight every day of the week. One of the main reasons for that is to help with decision-making. So you can get a two-consultant opinion. We obviously, uh, often if we're saying no, we generally have seen the patient, which is more often with the only consultant there in the evening and the night, and their own parent consultant may, or may not have seen them for a little while. And that can help as well, is getting that second opinion from a colleague, and that helps protect you. One of my little sayings about intensive care and its future is, uh, no unemployment, and yet just nervous breakdown. The need for intensive care is growing and growing. And more and more in society say, I don't want to die. I'm 90 and I play bowls and I think I need to intensive care. And you feel that pressure to say, yes, that goalposts are getting wider and wider of what we're actually letting in each time. And that demand for intensive care, it's great for careers because there's plenty of jobs and there will be for 20, 30 years. No one is saying we should do less to people. Everyone's saying we should do more. What we need to be able to do is survive it and not have nervous breakdown, not have burnout. And one of the key ways we can do that is to actually support each other and supporting each other in decision making. That's the bit that wakes you up. Did I make the right decision or not? Did I use NORAD? Did I use the right drug? It's often those decisions that wake you up at night that make you wonder whether you made those. And saying no is a hard one. But we still should say no, and we still should say limits. I'm not prepared to give up and become like some of our colleagues across the pond may do, where intensive care is just a way of you know, making money, and as long as the insurance is there, we keep um, treating, and you know, we never make decisions because we just say yes, yes, yes. And I think, therefore, I go back to my yes but. Opening the doors of intensive care without walls, all those concepts are the expansion of intensive care. But there is a but, and we need still to make decisions.
1: The more balanced framework that
0: you and Dan Harvey have proposed does cover
1: the whole Beauchamp and Childress Principles autonomy. The terms I hear more often
0: are best interest and futility.
1: Do you know how you would sort of fit those or restructure those to fit into your framework?
0: Emma's make sure of the facts. Now, what we often find when we have disagreements with um, parent specialties particularly is there's a disagreement of facts. The hematologist thinks that this chemo will cure them. We think they're in multi organ failure, and there's not a, you know, that, that statistic of, uh, you know, 60% survival with that chemotherapy regime may well be true in a well patient, but is no longer true in someone with multi organ failure. And, and that's part of the disagreement then immediately about the facts that are at play. And once you realize that, that can really help you approach uh, your discussions with them. The outcomes are relevant to the agents involved is to really bring in all the agents an agent is someone who's got a moral stake in the ground, who cares about the outcome, and obviously that's the patient, that's the family. And that just immediately tells you that it's, it's so important in these decisions and for best interests, where you need to know someone's values, wishes and beliefs, that you actually have to go and find out what is the outcome of relevance to those people. But it also brings in the parent specialty uh, into that. I find in my practice, Kubler-Ross's stages of grief are extremely useful, not for families and not for patients, but for parent specialties who have a relationship with their. So you often find them in complete denial. You know, what do you mean this is multi-organ failure? This chemotherapy is going to work. And then they move into anger, really angry at you. You always say no. You always say no. And then they move to bargaining. Well, please, if you can just admit them for a few days, you know, we can see how they go. Then you find actually you're having a cup of coffee with them a few days later and they're talking about all the patients and the sadness and how they know the family and they've all got tears and depression about the outcomes. And finally, you're moving your hematology consultant colleague to acceptance that this time that person's dying. We should talk to the family now. Once you realize that and how they're on a journey as well, it means that when they're getting angry at you, you go, yeah, this is anger. It'll pass. And I'll bet you they'll, tomorrow they'll be bargaining with me. Oh, yeah, here they are. They're bargaining. And, and actually, it takes the sting out of it. And we can sort of step back from it and also be more protective of them and caring of our colleagues. And so that's, again, an outcome of relevance. Now, does that trump a family that says, I don't want this? And a patient who says, I don't want it? Of course not. But it's actually to bring it into the mix. Because if you are going to go and tell them, oh, look, I really think the family don't want this, you realize you need to take your colleague on a journey. Also, those agents are also your nursing staff and your only other intensive care colleagues, and you need to bring them on. And so what the moral balance framework is, once you bring out all these outcomes of relevance, it allows you to know where to invest your time in that decision and what's at play. And then, you know, you can level them out. And in difficult situations in ethics and in clinical decision making, I will draw, and so will Dan Harvey, four squares on a box. Autonomy, benefit, because I can't sell beneficence. Harm, because I can't spell non-maleficence and then justice, and then I would actually add that in. And, you know, this is how judges make decisions, not with those four principles, but they often do a four-quadrant box. And it allows you to bring it out, even more importantly, once you've done that, it guides you to a decision, but then it actually helps you write your notes because it brings logic to your notes. And given that judges follow a very similar format, if you're writing something that then actually reads off the page, like a carefully considered, carefully weighed judgment, it's very hard to criticise. And actually, even if other people come to a different conclusion, it doesn't mean that you were wrong to make that conclusion at that time. So the moral balance framework, it allows you not to just be blinkered, not to make what they call a heuristic or a default, or just a a quick thinking decision, allows you to actually make a balanced decision. And that fits with best interests. It also brings out what futile means. And futile can be physiological futile. It could also be the outcomes. If the outcomes aren't, congruent with what the patient and the family think are worthwhile outcomes then it's futile that actually helps you decide that something is futile because surviving with a GCS of six may be acceptable to some patients and families but completely unacceptable to others and that you know that's not decided by the GCS of six that's decided on what outcomes are mattered
1: so this framework you think provides a way of articulating or demonstrating a more objective consideration
0: of the issues. Absolutely. It's part of what we call objective ethics. Now, in the end, there is always a subjective element towards the end of the actual decision. But it allows you to list all the facts and the outcomes of relevance. It allows you then to dictate your notes. And I think that's really, um, really helpful.
1: One of the issues we have in critical care is a significant proportion of our population are unable to articulate or tell us the outcomes of relevance to them. And we rely often on family members or next of kids or friends to create the scene, really. Areas of conflict that I've noticed and other people have talked about are when uh, those outcomes we don't believe are necessarily in the best interests of that patient. but Clearly, the family, for whatever reason, believe
0: they are. How do you begin to untangle that? I mean, this is a growing problem and uh, with, with, with fundamental disagreements uh, in, in what counts and whether the patient is suffering or not. Again, the moral balance framework can help you. It can actually help you because is this a disagreement in facts? And it may be because you think the patient's going to die and the family, because of either their own strong beliefs, which can be religious or may not be religious, think they're not is a fundamental question of fact, and you're not going to um, be able to cope with that. A classic example for me, and using a non-religious argument, is the mothers of young adults or even sort of a bit older adults who've been severe mental disability, who've been cared for their entire life. And you go to that mother and you tell them you think their son or daughter is going to die because of what's happening. And they've heard that they're going to die 10 times already in the life of their child. And do you think you're going to make any difference by going up and wasting your breath and saying they're dying? No, this time it's happening. Until that mother can see for herself that her child is dying, it's impossible to. and, And why would she believe you when 10 other times other consultants have told her the same thing and been wrong? And so that's a classic example where the facts are in complete disagreement, and you're not going to get past that. And it's potentially useless to start talking about quality of life at that moment, while you haven't even got past the disagreement on facts. Then you can to other cases where you talk about the outcomes of relevance, and that's when you can sort of start to unpick that. But you need to have actually agreed some of the facts there, and then you can move the family there. I've seldom regretted giving more time to families. A lot of times in intensive care, time fixes everything. And actually, it's important to allow that so the family to have that time. You know, for you, it's, it might be obvious days ago, but for the family, it can be less so. That doesn't mean that you sort of give carte blanche for sort of forever times and you are trying to move the family to acceptance if that is the inevitability, what they're facing with. And, you know, I think you can achieve that with consistency in who speaks to the family, not telling the family every single day. Like, you know, one person says one day they're dying, the next person says another, but they're dying, and the third day someone says they're dying. Sometimes repeating it over and over again doesn't help, and you're almost better to say, right, we'll talk on Friday and give a little bit more time when I'm back, because otherwise they start to feel that everyone is against them, and that actually can undermine things as well. It can, of course, get to the stage where you're looking for legal solutions and the court of protection, but what we've seen in many ways, while there's some life and while there's some hope, And while the family think that the benefits outweigh the suffering, judges are very reluctant to use ourselves as intensive care doctors and nurses to make a decision of benefit versus suffering. So in many ways, the message I've learned from the court is that the family decide whether they're suffering. And if the family think the benefits outweigh the suffering, it's going to be very unlikely a judge is going to go against that. So we then have to work with the family.
1: Even when that conflicts with the principal, doctors, physicians and uh, nurses shouldn't provide treatments they feel are wholly inappropriate.
0: Yeah, and that's one of the huge challenges. And many of you know, our colleagues around the country have been in that situation for months and months providing treatment that they think isn't appropriate, isn't beneficial. And that's one of the burdens of intensive care. Luckily, it's actually uh, less than we think. We shouldn't be sort of fearful of, of the rare cases that cause that. We need, we need to support each other in those rare cases. We need mechanisms potentially from the faculty and from Intensive Care Society of when to go to court to help step us through this, because I think it's coming more often. But at the same time, we shouldn't panic. I also think we could do more for cultural awareness. I, I saw a statistic that by 2050, we'll be one of the most diverse countries in the world. And learning to celebrate that diversity is really important more cultural awareness will help. As chair of my ethics committee, what struck me in recent times in the hospital is the benefit you can have by bringing the chaplaincy service into that. And I think we're taking everything on our own. We ourselves in Nottingham have also taken one of our specialist nurses for organisation who has stepped out of that role and we are now employing her as a permanent family liaison officer who actually meets with the family and and supports the family and becomes their advocate to us because we know that nearly all of our complaints we get, 90% of them are due to communication. So how can we improve our communication with families when we're getting busier and busier, opening more beds? How do we survive not getting a burnt out, nervous breakdown? And one of the ways we're doing it in Nottingham is using those skills specialist nurses for organization have developed with family care And we've actually poached one of them to actually use her to deliver better family care for us. And we're really valuing that. Those complicated patients we just spoke about, those families, she'll be in there helping support that family and also helping to maintain the relationship of that family with us because that's one of the key aspects. One final
1: question, if you don't mind. So the application of the Moral Balance phone on 11pm on a cold Tuesday night on the wards in isolation, is it something that you think can be done relatively quickly and practically? Or all members of staff or is this the remit really of
0: the consultant? No, I think it's um, really powerful and it, it is designed to be quick. It's a bedside thing, you know, make sure of the facts. And if the answer is, I don't have all the facts, I need more time to get the facts, well, you probably should admit then. I will say that one of the things I rage against and many intensive care doctors do is that concept of full escalation that's written in the notes when people, you know, a medical sort of team will write full escalation. And I think we as a specialty need to destroy that as a term because that is so unhelpful. So a bit tongue-in-cheek, I'll share this with what you could do. So when the cardiologist uh, sort of says, you know, they're for full escalation and in the notes and it's 11 p.m. and you're on CCU and that's all you can see is that, ring them up and ask them, okay, I see you're for full escalation. Have you, uh, they're going to have an angio. They go, what? No, 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 they don't need an angio. What about, well, balloon pump? No, 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 they don't need balloon pump. What about a heart transplant? Do they need a, can we have a heart transplant? No, what are you talking about? Then you go, so they're not for full escalation, are they? And alternatively for the surgeon, when they've written full escalation, you say, say, okay, you ring them up and say, okay, you see this full escalation. Well, I've booked theatre for you, but they don't need surgery. Well, hang on. You know, they're for full escalation. I booked theatre and I've told the family they're going to have an operation to save their life. Let's get some revenge back. And I think if we do that, they'll very quickly start to realise full escalation is not something they want to write in the notes. They should write if they're actually treating us like actually a specialty, which we are, is if deteriorates, please get an intensive care consult to see what they can offer. Yes, that may mean we may have to attend more consults, but I'd rather see a few more consults than have this throwaway full escalation at 11.30, 1am. You're the only one there. And they just wrote that at five o'clock on a Friday because they just wanted to get through the weekend and make it someone else's problem. And that's just not fair.